0: And they found that on average, each home harbored 2,000 different types of microbes, just like a staggering number. If all this was happening, you know, right under my nose and invisible to me, like what else was I missing about indoor spaces? And that sort of became the spark for the whole book.
1: On this episode of Design Lab, join me on the journey to explore the great indoors. I'm so excited to have Emily Anthes for the last episode of 2020. Emily is a science journalist, and she's the author of The Great Indoors, The Surprising Science of How Buildings Shape Our Behavior, Health, and Happiness. It is such a good book. I highly recommend it. Emily and I talk about the design of modern hospitals, evidence-based design, and how infectious diseases have shaped the design of American cities. Learn about the relationship between architecture, city planning, and public health, and you hear some tips on how to create your own healthier indoor space. Thank you, everyone, for listening this year. This podcast has been one of the silver linings of 2020, and the best way to support us is to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Okay, here's my conversation with Emily Anthes. Emily Addis, welcome to Design Lab.
0: Thanks, thanks so much for having me.
1: So I love your book and I've heard you describe hospitals as hermetically sealed, mechanically ventilated structures. Can you tell me about the design of modern hospitals?
0: Yeah, well, that is really a generalization that you know, I developed to contrast with some of the history of hospitals hmm. So if you look back to maybe the 19th century, hospitals were well in the early part of the 19th century, hospitals were like death traps. If you mm. could afford medical care at home, you got medical care at home. It was really the poor and people who didn't have a lot of other options that ended up in hospitals, which were often poorly cleaned they were so overcrowded that there were in some cases patients didn't just share rooms they actually shared beds which is kind of un- unfathomable to think about and yeah like no real sewage waste management program mm. they were just unhygienic and as you might expect uh, infectious disease uh, we didn't yet understand germ theory just like spread like rampant at these places and so Listeners may know a bit about Florence Nightingale, but she and some others in the latter half of the 19th century came along and overhauled hospitals, decided or realized that daylight and fresh air and nature and basic sanitation could really help improve patient outcomes, reduce the risk of disease. So you did have what was known as the Pavilion Hospital become Mm sort of a popular model in this time towards the end of the 19th century. And essentially, these were long, skinny wards that sort of stuck out like fingers from a Mm. a central corridor. And there were windows all along both walls. Each ward was separated by a lawn or a garden, creating these sort of cross breezes and this natural space. But that sort of model gradually fell out of favor in the 20th Mm. century for a couple of reasons. You know, part of it was we began to understand germ theory and antisepsis and things like that. And so we began to rely more on like chemical disinfection to keep hospitals clean rather than, you know, fresh air and and daylight. Mm -hmm. But then also the invention of all sorts of new technologies, you know, medical technologies and building technologies sort of led us to seal up our buildings and to focus really on creating these sort of machine like efficient buildings. Mm. And efficiency really became the watchword. And as a result, we ended up sort of closing up these buildings, getting rid of operable windows, creating tight building envelopes that were a stark contrast to what had come before.
1: I sometimes just want to open up a window in the emergency room where I work, but there are no windows. And especially during COVID, I'm thinking, I, if I could just crack a window, I know that's going to improve the ventilation. And do you think we've gone too far on on the other extreme of just sealing up these buildings and envelopes and not allowing like natural cross ventilation?
0: Absolutely, I think that's one of the big takeaways from the book. And you know, it's sort of ironic because it turns out that one of the big overarching lessons is that the best way to create or one of the best ways to create a healthy indoor environment is to bring in elements of the outdoor environment. So that includes fresh air, daylight, also nature, keeping windows open. All of those things we know have a wide range of benefits from, you know, right now, a lot of people are thinking about COVID, which is understandable, but... Mm improving ventilation and bringing in more fresh air can also reduce our exposure to indoor air pollutants and it can bring in outdoor microbes that we think are good for our Mm. immune system so i definitely think there's some room for some course correction and for the pendulum to swing back a little bit
1: Mm. we should listen to florence nightingale who is the og healthcare designer i mean she was doing this over over 100 years ago but what's interesting, I've you know traveled to Central America and to Africa and Sierra Leone and this pavilion sort of building still kind of exists in some of these hospitals out in the rural areas because mm-hmm. it's warmer and there's outdoor hallways and patients had a lot more access to windows. Do you think it's possible for us to redesign the modern hospital in the U.S. to go back to some of that pavilion style architecture?
0: Yeah, I mean it is tricky and I understand that there are trade-offs. I mean, one reason in particular our buildings became so tightly sealed in the 20th century was concerns about energy use and sustainability. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that can take a hit if you're opening windows. And also in a place like a hospital where you really want a controlled environment, I understand that if you start just opening windows everywhere, then that gives you in some ways less control over the airflow and whatever patients Mm. might be exposed to. So I do understand there are trade-offs and difficulties there, but I also think there are some compromises, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to create totally open air buildings, but Mm. we can change ventilation settings so that we're bringing in more fresh air instead of simply recirculating indoor air. Mm. And some of the things that are really important don't have anything to do with the building envelope per se, but it's just like, making sure that patients all have big windows in their mm. rooms that let them look out and bring in natural light. And I do want to say that there has been, this is an area in which there's been some progress. Mm. I mean, a lot of new hospitals or redesigned hospitals today are you know, incorporating nature. They have trees in the lobby. They have meditation gardens. They have views like we are seeing progress here, but it's by no means universal.
1: Do you think COVID is going to have a fundamental impact upon redesigning the modern hospital?
0: You know, that's another tricky one. I think, yes, but I actually think the impacts in terms of design and architecture are more likely to be felt outside of the hospital. And in Mm. part, that's because I think in a lot of ways, hospitals are opt, Already operating at a really high level, at least when we're talking about like air quality and ventilation. Mm-hmm. Like most hospitals have excellent ventilation, they have, you know, Merv filters and all sorts of super high tech air quality controls. Those innovations are much less common, for instance, in like offices and commercial spaces or, you know, skyscrapers, high rise living. Arrangements. So, in some ways, I think like that's the lowest hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that I think there's no room for improvement in hospitals. I mean, I think one thing we've come to understand, and you're probably seeing this firsthand, is that flexibility is really mm-hmm. important. You know,
1: like 100%. Yeah. Especially with the surge capacity, that it, we need that flexibility of the rooms.
0: Exactly. And, you know, it's not efficient or sensical to design a hospital that is designed to be in the middle of a pandemic at all times, because Mm -hmm. most of the time, you know, knock on wood, like we're not going to be in the middle of a pandemic, but there will be other epidemics and pandemics in the future. And so it's really important to think about how can we create spaces that are adaptable Mm -hmm. and that can flex in use or places that maybe aren't designed initially to be patient rooms, but can be easily converted into patient rooms. Things like that, I think, will be really important.
1: If there's one thing on my dream list, and I've been dreaming about this for years, maybe over a decade, is that we stop putting patients in hallway beds. Mm -hmm. This routinely happens in emergency departments across the country, especially urban emergency rooms where I work in. And it's so dangerous, and I am flabbergasted that this still happens right now, and especially during um, the COVID pandemic. To me, it's like the if if an airplane was overbooked, and then you're not even sitting in a seat, you're sitting in the aisle. That's what it's like for me to put a patient in a hallway bed. And do you think that's going to go away? Like, is there is there hope to stop putting patients in hallway beds?
0: Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I agree with you. That would be ideal. You know, I would imagine, and you can probably speak to this better than uh-huh. I can, but like, I imagine that most hospitals aren't doing it out of a desire to treat no, them people in the okay. hallway. You know, like no, we're getting it's sort of a last resort. We're getting exactly. overwhelmed
1: with, with um, numbers, but it so routinely I, happens across emergency rooms across the U.S. and it just frustrates me so much.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's another example in which like the trade offs are really apparent because you know of all of the hospital design elements that have evidence behind them one of the most important things we can do is to provide single patient rooms right. it just the evidence shows that it has an enormous range of benefits it reduces infections medical errors improves staff performance all sorts of stuff and we are seeing hospitals move towards that but I also understand that's perhaps a less efficient use of space than than multi-patient rooms. Uh And so like, how do you both deliver on that and also make sure you have enough space to treat all the patients you're going to get? I don't know what the solutions are, but I wonder if there are some lessons to be learned from maybe like some of the temporary structures that have gone up during covid
1: And, you know, I think there just needs to be a change in in the codes for hospital buildings that, you know, similar, I've talked about this with my colleagues, how there are fire codes and it's expensive to fireproof a building. We should pandemic proof buildings. And yes, it's more expensive to have flexible spaces that we could scale up for surge capacity, but it should be a requirement when building a hospital and that we should not tolerate putting patients in the hallway bed. So that's my dream. I don't know if it's going to happen.
0: No, it's, I mean, it's a really good point. I mean, I think it's probably a hard problem to solve, especially in, in, you know, conditions like we're seeing right now.
1: In your research, have you come across a well-designed hospital, your ideal of a kind of a well-designed hospital or what kind of almost gets there?
0: Well, So I did look at, and I talk about one example of a building. It's a bit of a specialty building, but it's really interesting and innovative. And that's the Infectious Disease Building in Malmo, Sweden. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, Mm -hmm. it was a university hospital in Sweden, and it was a building that existed to treat their infectious disease patients. It was redesigned starting in 2005, 2006. So SARS was very much on their Mm -hmm. mind and SARS spread a lot in hospitals and healthcare settings. And so they really did some innovative things in terms of how can we design a building that reduces the spread of infectious diseases. And so a couple of the features they included were so, there are a bunch of isolation rooms that can be entered directly from the outdoors on the ground floor. Whoa. So, if patients are coming and they're thought to be infectious or at high risk they don't have to go to some communal ER waiting area they're funneled directly into these private rooms
1: right right from the outside you get yes. enter into a patient room yes. right from the outside oh, yeah so cool um
0: so that you know obviously reduces the odds that you're sitting in a waiting room coughing on other people mm. And they, I mean, they took this even further. So this is the emergency room and the outpatient clinic on the first floor. The second, third, and fourth floors are inpatient rooms. And this building is circular. And there are actually these balconies that wrap all the way around those floors. And so patients are actually transported to their rooms outdoors. Every patient room has a door directly to one of these balconies. And then there's an internal corridor that's used just by staff and another set of doors into each patient room. So you really are controlling the flow of patients in a way that sort of reduces, hopefully, you know, disease transmission.
1: And they're still able to, and with a cold environment too, they're still able to design buildings for that cold environment.
0: So I encourage people to look up photos because it's really interesting. They sort of have these angled glass slats, like... on the outer edge of the balconies. So it's sort of protecting people from the worst of, you know, it's a bit exposed Uh, to the outdoors, but Uh it's, you know, protecting people from the worst wind and and rain and stuff like that. And, you know, a bunch of other smart design features as well. So, you know, single patient rooms. So interestingly, they've also really thought about flexibility. Mm. So the ideal is single patient rooms, but, each of the rooms is sort of deliberately oversized so that in a pandemic situation or an outbreak situation, they can be converted into double rooms. And so there are a lot of sort of smart touches mm-hmm. like that, that I think is re- are really interesting.
1: After this pandemic is over, I'm going to totally visit that hospital. I, I geek out about visiting hospitals. Like some people go to museums when they travel. Mm-hmm. I try to get a local connection and go, hey, can I visit your emergency room? I did that last time in Singapore and just I learned so much by going into hospitals in different countries. So I can't yeah, wait it's a really to cool check one. it out.
0: Yeah, it's a really cool Did you
1: one. get to visit or you're just doing all your research on, <laughs> no, online? No,
0: I didn't. I talked to the head of the department there. And actually, if people are interested, they wrote a paper about it, which I believe is called Either architecture or hospitals for what they call the quote post antibiotic era, because oh, that so was something cool. that was sort of in in mind. But there's some papers on on what they did oh. that I encourage people to look up.
1: In your book, you talk about evidence based design, and you know it, it's similar to evidence based medicine that I'm familiar with. What is evidence based design?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a broad umbrella term, but in general, it is, refers to designers or architects or urban planners drawing upon the scientific literature, you know, the peer-reviewed literature to create spaces that accomplish certain outcomes. So that could be a hospital that has lower rates of infection or a school or a classroom that improves student test scores or learning outcomes or a home or apartment building that fosters more physical activity. Mm-hmm. So whatever the objective is, the idea is that the designers are pulling on actual peer-reviewed research mm-hmm. to try to accomplish those goals.
1: So so the building can be, it's like treated like a an intervention, like a prescription medication or a surgical procedure and seeing if that evidence behind that built environment actually, maybe the design intent measures to the outcomes or something like that. Is that right?
0: Yeah. And, you know, a lot of hospitals were actually sort of the, the birthplace of this field, maybe for obvious reasons, just because that's an environment in which, you know, People are really attuned to occupant health and mm-hmm. well-being, and so a lot of the early studies were done in hospitals. You know, there's the famous Roger Ulrich one, which people might be familiar with, about mm. you know the view from a patient room after surgery can impact recovery. But then there are lots of other studies that have been done in hospitals on like the benefits of daylight or of noise reduction, mm. and those lessons have started to be implemented in hospitals. But what's also happened is that they've expanded beyond hospitals. And Mm -hmm. it turns out those lessons really apply regardless of settings. So you're Mm -hmm. now seeing architects use them to design offices or schools that give people access to nature and daylight or noise reduction. And so those Mm -hmm. lessons are are spreading outward.
1: I want to shift gears a little bit. You live in Brooklyn, New York. Can you talk about how... The infectious diseases of the 1800s in New York fundamentally alter the design of residential buildings in New York City?
0: Yeah, this is, you know, I studied the history of medicine, so I'm sort of a sucker for a historical story, and this is one of my favorites. So, American cities, big cities, especially New York, but others as well, in you know, 18th, 19th centuries were just hotbeds of infectious disease. Yellow fever, cholera, tuberculosis. Infectious disease was a leading cause of death and the death rates were often staggering. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in some years in New York in like the 1840s and 50s, there were more deaths than births in the city. Wow! And at the same time, the cities were sort of, places of squalor, (laughs) you could Mm -hmm. say. So in lots of places, there were no sewers. Indoor plumbing was relatively rare. There was refuse and manure on the street. There was no zoning. So you might have like a slaughterhouse or a stable, you know, on the same block as tenement buildings. And then, of course, the tenement buildings themselves were extremely crowded, extremely poorly ventilated, Mm -hmm. Often the walls sort of caked in literal grime and soot and ash, and
1: oh, so gross.
0: Yes, de- <laughs> definitely. I mean, I think would be shocking to any of us city dwellers today. You know, like it's not like my streets in Brooklyn are sparkling all the time right now, but you know, compared to 1850, th- uh-huh. they are. And you know, the interesting thing is, again, germ theory was not really mm. a widely accepted concept at the time, but there were sanitary reformers that sort of had an instinct that like a city this filthy can't be good for people's health. Mm -hmm. And so there were a series of reforms put into place in, you know, the late 1800s across a wide range of ideas. So the city established a Department of Sanitation and street cleaning and started to actually clean up the streets. Mm. There were a bunch of tenement reforms. Sort of some of the most significant were requiring every room in a tenement building to actually have a window to the outdoors for ventilation. There was zoning put into place. The expansion of the subway also helped with overcrowding because Mm -hmm. it allowed people to spread to new neighborhoods. Mm. And what happened was slowly as these interventions were put into place, the rates of infectious disease just plummeted. And, you know, antibiotics and vaccines definitely played a role, Mm. you know, a bit later in helping vanquish these diseases. But the first things that really made a dent in the death rate were these sanitary reforms and these reforms in urban design. Mm. And so it's a really stark and vivid example of how, redesigning the physical environment can improve health outcomes
1: there's such a linkage between architecture, city planning, and public health
0: mm-hmm. absolutely
1: what what about now? How does the design of the modern building contribute to chronic diseases?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's something that architects have begun to probe in the last decade or two. And a lot of what they're learning and doing has come to be known as active design. Mm -hmm. And so the underlying idea is that the way, in a lot of ways, movement, physical movement and activity has been designed out of the modern environment, whether that's at the building level or the neighborhood level. So if you think about suburbs, you know, and how car centric they are, mm-hmm. or in an urban environment, if you walk into a high rise, like the first thing you're probably going to see is this gleaming lobby with a bank of elevators. Mm-hmm. And if you can find the stairs at all, which often you can't, they are behind a heavy fire door, and they smell weird, and maybe they're lit with like flickering fluorescent lights, and it's not pleasant. <laughs> like it's, it's no. It's wonder creepy.
1: It- I hate elevators, and I'm always looking for the stairway. And it's like, they're not pleasant places and buildings.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so the idea is like, what if we could flip that script and sort of make stairs the default choice? And again, I want to be careful here because there are accessibility concerns. And Mm -hmm. so like stairs aren't possible for everyone. And so we don't want to be like getting rid of elevators or making them harder to access But what we can do is sort of make stairs central, prominent, well-lit, you know, aesthetically appealing. And research shows that can encourage people to take the stairs. And moreover, that even just a few extra flights of stair climbing a day can actually have long-lasting cardiovascular benefits. Mm. So the idea is like, how can we sort of gently nudge people into being more active and to making healthier choices just in their everyday lives you know not having to go to the gym but just as they go about their day.
1: Yeah just make that barrier to entry so low that you're you don't even know you're exercising.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So I'm kind of curious how y- you got to writing your your book The Great Indoors that that came out this year. So I know You study the history of science and medicine and create writing at Yale. How did you decide to become a science journalist?
0: Yeah, well, it's both, I guess, a a long story and, and not a long story. But for a long time, I did want to go to med school. I was interested, you know, probably a bit more in research than clinical practice, but for you know, baffling reasons. I got really interested in neuroscience when I was like 11. And what? So, like <laughs> I read some, I, I mean, my dad is sort of interested in science and, you know, was a devotee of like Oliver Sacks. And uh-huh. so like, I read some of that. And then, you know, I was a big science fair geek. And you, my you read
1: Oliver Sacks when you're in 11
0: or 12 maybe. Uh, Yeah. And then, you know, phantoms in the brain was a uh, really influential book for me. And I just remember in high school, like getting textbooks on neuroscience from the library and like teaching myself how neural transmission worked. Like, I was was that kind of kid. Um, So I was thinking about med school, but also, you know, like maybe like I had the PhD, like, you know, something in neuroscience. And I started on that track in college and sort of slowly realized that I was really interested in the ideas, but didn't think I would be great in the clinic, like just temperamentally and was finding out through my lab work that I did not like research and I didn't like, it, I'm not really a patient person. And it was also painstaking and it just, the practice of it seemed so much less interesting to me than the big ideas behind it. Mm. And so I also had always been interested in journalism. Both my parents are journalists. So, you know, I was working for my high school paper and my college paper and sort of realized that, oh, like maybe I could write about these ideas instead mm. of being the person, instead of doing the research, I could write about the people who were essentially. And, I, you know, it's been a great, fit for me. Like, I think I'm a good science journalist. I think I could have worked really hard to be an adequate research scientist, but like, Uh I think that's all I would have been and just wasn't the right match for my skills, but, but this is, I think.
1: I really appreciate what journalists do because they're able to draw from different domain expertise and tie it together. And I feel sometimes with scientists and researchers, they just stay with their within their own domain expertise. And it's hard to connect a dot sometimes.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that's something that interested me about journalism and, and science journalism from the beginning was like another challenge I was having and envisioning like my future as a researcher or clinician was like, I couldn't imagine how to pick like a specialty or a focus. And, you know, I sort of liked being able to skip around to different things. And like journalism definitely allows you to do that. Like I know a lot, I know a little about a lot of different things instead of having gone deep on something.
1: What was your inspiration for writing your book, The Great Indoors?
0: Yeah, so that, you know, in my day to day, I'm a science journalist, I'm a freelancer, I write a lot of articles when I'm not writing books. And so that means I'm sort of constantly reading journals or, you know, looking at press releases and studies that are coming out to just look for story ideas and get a sense of like what certain fields are are working on. And about 10 years ago now, I started noticing sort of a small surge in studies looking at sort of what was being called the indoor microbiome. Hmm. So these were researchers who were going into buildings and collecting dust samples or swabbing surfaces, sequencing all the DNA it contained and generating sort of lists of microbes that were present in our buildings. Okay. And the findings... I thought were astonishing. So one of the first studies I found that still sticks in my mind was a survey of 40 homes in North Carolina, and they just swabbed everyday services like countertops and TV screens and stuff like that. And they found that on average, each home harbored 2,000 different types of microbes, just like a staggering number.
1: In a regular home, that was like an average. Yes. Like these are bacteria or viruses or both?
0: It's mostly bacteria and some fungi. Actually, so I'll say like that, that these studies don't generally have not looked at, at viruses very much just uh, they're harder to study yeah, for a lot of reasons. Totally. That's happening now, but so that 2000 number doesn't even include, you know, viral material. But so like that astonished me like in its own right, but then it also really got me thinking about my space and you know it prompted this paradigm shift where first of all I started to think of my home and homes as ecosystems which I just Mm. thought was a really interesting way to Mm. think about a building you know I'd always thought of ecosystems as something that happened outside you know Uh and not in my apartment but then it also just sort of made me look at my indoor space in a new way like if all this was happening you know, right under my nose and invisible to me, like, what else was I missing about indoor spaces? And that sort of became the spark for the whole
1: book. And you say that 90% of our time as humans are spent indoors with this indoor species.
0: Yeah, modern humans are essentially an indoor species. Absolutely.
1: How how did you come up with the name, The Great Indoors? Because I love it.
0: That was there from the beginning. It just it sort of Partly, you know, I don't remember exactly now. It's been, you know, eight or nine years. But I think the idea, it was because it was sparked by this work on indoor microbes and this thinking of our buildings as ecosystems, sort of the initial concept for the book became like, what if... You know, you read these books that are like expedition books, like deep Mm -hmm. into the jungle or, you know, Antarctica. And I was like, what if that, but for everyday spaces, you know, what if I took people on an adventure into our buildings? And so The Great Indoors was sort of meant to evoke that sort of sense of exploration in these very familiar spaces.
1: You said we spent about 90% of our time indoors. Maybe that's jumped up to like 95% with the pandemic Indoor spaces are the most dangerous places to be right now and because of the pandemic. What advice do you have for people listening about redesigning their indoor spaces to be healthier?
0: So my number one tip for people, especially as we're heading into what is probably going to be a pretty long, dark, both literally and figuratively winter, um, is nature you know, we've talked about incorporating elements of the outdoors and a lot of those studies are about like window views of natural landscapes, which are great if you have them, but there's probably not much you can do about it if you can't, if you don't. But the interesting thing about nature is that it seems like basically any kind of nature can really do the trick. So bringing in houseplants, even fake plants, if they, you know, look realistic. What? um, You're kidding
1: me plants
0: can have stress relieving effects wow. so can even just images of nature so like a photograph of a natural landscape and there's even some evidence that's emerged on sounds of nature so playing bird song or babbling brook all of those things can at a minimum reduce stress and may have some of the same other benefits as like being out in the real thing. I live in New York city and I'm a renter in an apartment. So like I have been limited in like, the changes I can make to my physical space. And yeah. I know a lot of people probably are the biggest change I've made in my space since doing this book is gotten like 20 house plants. And so that's a really easy or, you know, relatively easy change people can make the other, you know, elements we know are really important are daylight, which mm-hmm. again, like you probably can't add more windows, but, you can be strategic about it. So we know, for instance, that daylight exposure in terms of at least our circadian rhythms is most important in the morning. Mm-hmm. So maybe if there's a space in your home that gets a lot of morning light and you're working from home, mm-hmm. maybe set up for a few hours there in the morning to try and, you know, absorb the light while you can. Yeah. I love hours. that. Like
1: redesigning your workday to be around a window. Exactly. The maximum sunlight. Right. Super practical.
0: And then there are, if you want to like invest more in it, there are now like things like circadian bulbs that you can get that will actually are programmed to change in intensity and color temperature over the course of the day to better match sunlight. So, you know, during peak daylight hours, they might be putting out this bright sort of cool light. Mm -hmm. And then when evening approaches, they get dimmer and they put out a more amber colored light, which we know is less likely to interfere with our sleep. So there are some technological breakthroughs that so, and you can like buy bulbs like that on Amazon and program them with your phone. It's like a very accessible technology. Now Mm. Um, you just swap them out with your regular bulbs.
1: It's so therapeutic for me to get sunlight and to get out in nature. Like I bought a mountain bike for for the first time, like a couple of weeks ago. So I've been, uh, going out on trails and mountain biking and seeing creeks and trees and hearing birds. And it's been so therapeutic. It's like what's keeping me less stressed out, you know, because it's pretty stressful days, you know, working in the hospital and just to be able yeah, to have remember. that escape into nature has been super therapeutic for me. And I I just underestimated it. Uh-huh. But I think this pandemic is Amplifying my needs to have views of nature, to be out in nature. Has it been strange for your book to be published right when this pandemic started? I know you've done a lot of like interviews because you're this expert on our indoor spaces and how to how we could redesign these spaces and the history behind the indoor spaces. What's that been like for you?
0: Yeah, it has been strange and uncanny you know normally I would probably be doing some sort of book tour going to bookstores and giving talks and readings and I do miss like interacting with people in that way but there have been some silver linings too you know one of them of course is that people are much more interested right now in their indoor environments I think Mm. and so I think there's like a moment of opportunity here
1: Mm. and
0: a chance to make our spaces better the other on sort of a more practical level is because I've been doing so many of these book events virtually, I'm getting to talk to and with people that normally I might not, like there might not have been the budget to like send me to California, but I just spoke to like a California writers group. And so the way that those distances have collapsed have, has been sort of a, a nice silver lining as well, but it's definitely been strange.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for your book. It's been such a joy to read and it's really helped me understand the science of indoor spaces. So it's been so cool. And I I love the section about hospitals. And I hope that through this pandemic, it can lead to some fundamental change in the redesign of hospitals where I work.
0: Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you liked the book and thank you for the work you're doing.
1: Yeah. Thanks for joining me in Design Lab. Of course. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Emily Anthes. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram. Please support us by subscribing, rating, and most importantly, reviewing this podcast. I'm your host, Bon Ku. Rob Puglisi produced this episode. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next year in 2021.